Well, please be seated. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to have gathered as your people, your family, and to hear your word to us as you meet with us now. And we pray, therefore, for your blessing upon us in this time as we come to your word. Lord, use me and speak through me, we pray, that your people might be blessed and the church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So please do have your Bible open there at that very, very short section that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're just looking at verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3. And that means we're right slap bang in the middle of this letter now. Uh, Paul, you remember, is writing this letter to his friend and his co-worker, Timothy. He has left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to lead the church there as they're going through a, a very difficult time. And Paul knows, therefore, that this is going to be quite a challenging undertaking for Timothy. And for that reason, he writes him this lovely letter that we call First Timothy, which is all about how to lead the church. And that main aim of the letter is captured best of all in the words that we come to this morning, isn't it? Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And to that end, Paul has already covered a lot of ground, hasn't he? In chapter 1, he spoke about the, the doctrinal standards of the church. How Timothy needs to tackle the false teaching that's doing the rounds. And instead of preaching false doctrines, himself preach sound doctrines. The heart of which is the gospel message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the doctrinal standard of the church. And then in chapter 2, he spoke about the, the public worship of the church, how that should be conducted. And then in chapter 3, he so far has written about the office bearers in the church. Who should be the office bearers? What kind of men should be appointed to these roles of elder and deacon in the life of the church? And it's worth just pausing for a moment and, and asking, well, why is all of this so very important? What is it about the church that is so vital? And why do we need to spend time, not just this morning, but indeed throughout this sermon series, specifically looking at how to get the church right? And that's exactly what Paul wants to explain to Timothy and to us in these verses to which we turn this morning. He puts this little section right at the very center 
of the book. And it underlines why the whole book is so important. Now this section, you'll notice, divides into two simple parts. Verses 14 and 15 describe what the church is. And then verse 16 describes what the church believes and therefore what the church proclaims as well. This morning we're just going to look at verses 14 and 15, what the church is. And you notice straight away, don't you, that Paul has given us these three little phrases in verse 15, which each describe what the church is. The household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what we'll do this morning is just spend a a brief bit of time looking at each of those three phrases, and hopefully that will help us to understand better what the church is. So firstly, take that first phrase, the church is the household of God. And Paul, when he says household there, doesn't mean the church is a building. It doesn't, he's not using the illustration either of a building, though that is, as we've seen already this morning, used elsewhere in scripture, such as 1 Peter 2. Rather, in this instance, when Paul says household, he means family. Remember, in the previous sections of the chapter to do with elders and deacons, he's spoken in both cases of their households, and it meant simply their family. So this is what Paul is saying first up in these verses. The church is a family, and the church is God's family. I don't know what plans you might have made for Christmas I'm sure that for a lot of you, though, that will involve family. Family will be a a key part of it. Maybe you're going to go and visit family over Christmas time, or maybe you've got family coming to visit you. Maybe you've got a a family gathering organized on Christmas Day. You'll get together and have Christmas lunch together. It's a time of year, isn't it, when we strongly emphasize family and the importance of family. And you see, Paul is saying here, God has a family. He is the father of that family. And that family is important to him. And if you're a Christian, then you yourself are a part of that family. Now, it has to be said, of course, that none of us were a part of that family by nature, By nature, we're far from God, alienated from him, out of relationship with him, cut off from him because of our sinful rejection of him. And yet by grace, we are brought in to this family, his family, adopted into God's family through coming to believe in his son, Jesus. In the prologue to John's Gospel, which of course at this time of year we very often think about, John says to us there, to all who did receive him, that is, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is Paul's letter to the Ephesian pastor, but you'll remember the words from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And in that letter as well, he reminds the whole church family of the fact that by adoption, they have been brought into God's family. He writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And so as Christians, we have this amazing new status that is conferred upon us. We are children of God with all of the blessings that are bound up with being children of God. John writes in his first letter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And just consider the the amazing benefits that are yours now that you're a child of God, adopted by grace in Christ, brought into God's family. You can call God your father. And you can come to him any time as a child coming to his or her father, asking for anything that you need and being confident that he will never withhold from you anything at all that is for your good, ultimately. And you can be assured of his fatherly love and his fatherly care watching over you. In the beautiful words of the Westminster Confession, you can be assured of God's pity, protection, and providence. You know that even when your father disciplines you, that that even that itself is actually a sign of his love for you. Because in that discipline, he is shaping you to be the child that he wants you to be. He's bringing about in you this, this harvest of righteousness in your life. He's making you more like the righteous one himself, Jesus, his son. And what is more, because you are his child, you're also his heir as well. The great inheritance that that belongs to Jesus by rights because he is the preeminent son of God. That inheritance is now shared with you as well. Now that inheritance is kept safely in heaven for you. But because you are God's child, that inheritance has got your name on it because you've got God's name on you. J.I. Packer summed it up well when he said, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, uh, 
affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. And when we say that as Christians, God is our Father, we're implying something else, aren't we? We're implying, of course, that every other Christian is our brother or our sister. Regardless of their age or their class or their gender or their background or their spiritual maturity, we all have the same status before God, one in Christ Jesus. Because if you're in Christ, well, of course, you can never be more than a child of God. But as well as that, you can never be anything less than a child of God either. We're all brothers and sisters. And you see, don't you, there is therefore both this this vertical and this horizontal dimension to our adoption into God's family. Vertically, we now relate to God as our father. Horizontally, we relate to one another as believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we're honest, that is sometimes difficult, isn't it? The brothers and sisters bit. We might be tempted to say, as someone has put it, to live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's a different story. It's the way it is, isn't it, sometimes? And we need to keep reminding ourselves again and again, therefore, that the church is the household of God. That the church is a family, God's family. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. And therefore, every Christian, whoever they are, whatever they are like, is your brother or sister. And so the more that we're conscious of of God's fatherhood, And our adoption into his family, the more our fellowship and our unity as the church is going to be strengthened. A.W. Tozer illustrates it very helpfully like this. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to God, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see, the church is God's household, God's family. And as his children, we tune our hearts together by looking to our Father, reminding ourselves of how he has adopted us in Christ and brought us all into his family. And then notice the the second description of the church that Paul sets before us here, and that is, he calls it the church of, of the living God, the church of the living God. If you've been with us on Wednesday evenings, you'll know that in our prayer gatherings, we've been going through the book of Acts, Paul's third missionary journey. And very recently, we've been looking at what took place when Paul was in Ephesus. 
Remember, the church that Timothy is pastoring is the church of Ephesus, that same congregation. And what stands out about Ephesus in particular is how deeply entrenched idolatry is in that city. Right in the the very middle of the city stood this huge temple to the goddess Artemis. It was one of the most incredible buildings in all the world in those days. And as we were seeing on Wednesday evening, this huge disturbance erupted in Ephesus during Paul's visit there. Because the gospel that Paul was preaching was, of course, turning people away from worshipping the false goddess, this idol, Artemis. And I'm sure that with all of that scene in mind, that scene of, of Ephesian idolatry, Paul draws this contrast here, do you see, between the real God and the idols that were worshipped in Ephesus. He refers to God here as the living God. That is, he's not like Artemis and he's not like any other idol because they are all dead. This God, our God, is the living God. And later on in this letter, Paul will describe the Lord Jesus Christ as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Or as the Apostle John puts it again in, first John, in John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. John is saying that this God is the source of all life. He has life in himself and he is the one who gives life. He alone can give life to anybody or anything. And best of all, he gives eternal life to those who are his children. He is the living God, but where does the living God live? Well, he doesn't live in a temple like Artemis. When Paul was in Athens, you remember, in Acts 17, There, his spirit was provoked by the the idolatry that he saw in Athens as well. And when he stood up to speak to the men of Athens, he said to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So if he doesn't live in a temple, where does this living and life-giving God live? Well, of course, in a general sense, he lives everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's no corner of his creation where he is not present. And yet, there's more to it than that. He's present in a special way in the church. That's why Paul elsewhere can talk of the church being the temple of God. Second Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That great covenant promise that God kept reiterating to his people that he would be their God and they would be his people and he would dwell with them. Well, it's fulfilled now in the church, the temple of the living God, where God has come to dwell amongst his people by his spirit. And so we are 
the church of the living God, that word church, you know that it, it just means gathering or, or assembly or, or congregation. That's what the word originally means. A, a gathering of people who have come together. And you see, Paul is saying when the church gathers together, as we have done this morning, and as we do Sunday by Sunday, that is where the living God is present with his people in a special way. The living God meets his people here in a special sense. Someone has illustrated it like this. Imagine that you're a servant and you work in the palace of a great king. You work there every day and so you, you live in the palace as well. You, you live there and you work there as a servant of the king. And therefore, in a sense, you're always in the presence of the king. And yet there are special occasions, maybe a, a royal banquet, when the trumpet sounds and everyone in the palace flocks to the, the great hall Every servant goes there and they stand to attention. And on that special occasion, the king comes in and he appears there in his glorious presence amongst his people in a greater way than is normal. And you see, don't you, as a Christian, you know that you're always in the presence of the living God. You are his servant. There's never a moment that you're out of his presence. Indeed, his spirit dwells within you. And yet there are special occasions, we call them Sundays, when, as it were, the trumpet sounds or the call to worship is issued from the pulpit. And as it were, the, the people of God, all of his servants, on that special occasion gather together and the king is there. And he, he meets with his people. And they benefit from being in his glorious presence to bless them in a greater way than is normal. And you understand, don't you, there's something that can be experienced here that cannot be experienced at any other time in quite the same way, and which cannot be experienced over a, a podcast or on sermon audio or, or whatever. Helpful, though, of course, those kinds of ministries are for those who sadly can't gather together with God's people. The king is here in a special way and he's here to bless his people and to meet with them and to be present in a glorious way with those who are his servants gathered together. Martin Luther got it spot on when he said very honestly, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And John Stott puts it very well when he says, when we come together as the church, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet at his table when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread. In our fellowship, we love each other as he has loved us. 
And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers coming in may confess that God is really among you. What an awesome privilege it is to have the opportunity to gather together like this as the church of the living God. I mean, why would you ever want to miss it? The living God is here in a special sense to meet with his people and to bless his people and to build up his people, fill them with comfort, fill them with assurance, fill them with joy and peace and every fruit of the Spirit. We are the church of the living God. And then thirdly and finally, we come to this next phrase to describe the church where Paul says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And once again, Paul is thinking of his time in Ephesus. And again, he wants to draw a contrast between the church and the great temple of Artemis, which stood right at the center of that great city of Ephesus and was one of the most famous and the most majestic buildings in the whole world in those days. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, no less. There were a hundred columns or pillars around the building. Each pillar was 18 meters high. Together, these pillars supported a massive shining marble roof. And you can imagine the Christians in Ephesus, can't you, on a Sunday morning, and they're on the way to church, walking to church, and they have to walk down the high street in Ephesus, and they have to go right past this awesome building, the Temple of Artemis. And wistfully, they maybe glanced up at it, and they thought to themselves, well, we'd love to have a church building like that to worship in. But instead, they're on the way around to someone's house and they're going to have a worship service in that person's front room with a handful of other Christians there. And to outward appearances, it all looks so inglorious, doesn't it? And you could understand if these Christians felt a little bit inferior compared to this great temple of Artemis and the worshippers who gather there. And Paul, with that picture in mind, he writes these words as if to say, well, you think the temple of Artemis is impressive. Just take a look at the church. See how impressive she is. And so he uses these architectural metaphors, do you see, to describe the church. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, the imagery is obvious, isn't it? What does a pillar do? A pillar holds something up. In a building, a pillar holds up the roof. And what does a buttress do? Well, the word that's translated there as buttress, it can either mean buttress or foundation. It doesn't really matter which translation we go with, whether it means buttress or foundation here. The, the point is that it's something that makes the building solid and secure and firm. Holding the building firm. Well, what is the church to do then? Well, firstly, the church is to hold the truth firm. Like a buttress or like a foundation in a building. Keeping the building solid. Keeping things stable. Protecting it. 
That is what the church is to do with the truth of God's word. And again, remember what Timothy was up against in Ephesus. Remember how chapter 1 described how these false teachers have been afflicting the church, teaching different doctrines, trying to drag people away from the faith. And so Paul says to Timothy, he must make sure that his congregation is a buttress or a foundation of the truth of God's word. That is, Timothy's ministry in the church must defend the truth against error, must hold the truth firm, not departing from it to the right or to the left, not adding to it, not taking away from it. The church must hold the truth firm. It's true for any church, isn't it? We're to hold the truth firm. And when errors start to threaten the gospel, we're to refute them so that the gospel is handed down to the next generation undefiled. And as well as holding the truth firm, the church must also hold the truth up. Again, think of the, the temple of Artemis at the center of that city in Ephesus with those 100 pillars, 18 meters high, holding up this massive, shining marble roof. Must have been an incredible sight to see. It would have towered above every other building in the whole city. You'd have been able to see it from miles around as you traveled to Ephesus. And with that picture in mind, Paul says the church is to be a pillar of the truth. We're to hold the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, high up, in order that as many people as possible can hear that truth and respond to it with faith in Jesus. It's what we're here to do this morning, isn't it? And each week, holding the truth of Jesus high. So that absolutely anyone who wants to can come along and hear it. And through faith in Jesus, become a child of God. And be brought into the household of God. I wonder, is that you this morning? That as you come along and as you listen to all of this, that you want in. As you hear the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know that that is what you need as well. You need to come to him in faith. Trusting in him. In order to be forgiven by God and be adopted by him. Brought into his family, the church. And I hope that all of you see this morning that the church really is a beautiful thing. This is why it is so important. Because the church is the household of God, God's family. He's our father. And together we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're the church of the living God. As we gather together like this, the living God is present with us. He meets us here to bless his people. If you want to know God's blessing in your life come to church meet him there that's the primary means isn't it of knowing the blessing of God uh, to be at church to meet with the living God there and as well as that we're a pillar and a buttress of the truth holding the truth firm holding the truth up so that others too can hear of Jesus Believe in him 
and then join the family. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that there is such a thing as the church. We praise you for the grace of adoption, that in Christ you have adopted us as your children. And we can call you our Father. And we can call our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters truly, because that is what we are. And help us, we pray, to live therefore as a family, loving one another, even as you have loved us. We thank you that you are present with your church at all times, and yet in a special sense, you're present when we meet as your people like this on the Lord's day. And Father, we pray that as we gather like this Sunday by Sunday, that you would bless us richly with your presence and pour out your blessing upon us as your people. Build us up in the faith, we pray. And we ask that you would help us as a church to fulfill the task that has been given to us. Help us to hold the truth firm, keeping it free from errors. And help us to hold the truth up so that many others will hear of Christ, trust in him, and be brought into your family. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen.